Joe. Hello, Mark. I have a question for you. So you're from the you're from the Maritimes. I am from the Maritimes. Which I did know, but I didn't realize that you grew up in PEI. Yes, born in New Brunswick, raised in Prince Edward Island, educated in Nova Scotia. How long are you living in PEI for? Uh, I was there for 17 years, I guess, because we moved there when I was oh. one year old and I moved away when I was 18 to Nova Scotia. And then when I was 19, moved to Ontario. So pretty formative years then. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And now, do, are you still from the island or are you a come from away? Or that's the, that's the phrase, right? Well, that's the from away. Yeah, because, yeah. okay, so my parents moved there in 1966. They are still considered from away. <laughs> and now that you've yeah. revealed yeah. that I wasn't actually born in the island and lived like one year in New Brunswick, I am technically from away as well. And of course, I've been away the last 37 years. So. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. It's like that in the countryside here in Ontario. You're always living in the person that owned the house before you's <laughs> house. So I'd like you to meet Gerard. He lives in Dr. <laughs> McCarty's house. You know, and like you've been living there for 10 years. This is, uh, uh, listeners, this is Gerard. Gerard Pop. Gerard Pop. And so the reason I asked that question, Joe, is because, first of all, I'm interested in, I'm obviously just trying to learn more about you and uh, help the internet steal your identity, obviously. Uh, That's why I keep asking all these questions. But um, also because Gerard also comes from another country. And I thought that might be an interesting confluence of ideas. It is. And so I gathered that country is the Netherlands. Am I correct? Yes. Yeah, I was born in the Netherlands. And how long have you been in Canada? Oh, heavens. I've been in Canada for quite some time. I don't, I, I've never actually sat down and counted the years, but I, I would feel safe to say, you know, 35 to 40 years in Canada. And I'm now, I'm now pushing 70. So, um, and so you had your formative years, though, in, in Holland. Yeah, I went, sort of, my parents and I immigrated to Canada in 1960. So I was a waif then. I went back when I was 17 and lived there for quite some time. Then I was back and forth, back and forth. Then um, I met the love of my life, my wife, and I stayed here. I'm glad you clarified it was your wife that's the love of your life. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case she's listening. We always ask our guests to introduce themselves, Gerard. So uh, our we, we've got two reasons for this. The main one, though, is that we want you to frame your reality a little bit. So, uh, you know, how would you describe yourself to someone that you're meeting, say, at a, a cocktail party or something? Mm, yeah. Yeah. In simple terms, I, I would say at a cocktail party, I'd say I'm a neurosurgeon. <laughs> and then they'd look at me. <laughs> And then I'd wait, pause, and then I would say, yeah, I did my own. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But I'm a visual artist, and I use combined mediums, not just uh, painting or sculpture. And um, that's who I am. Okay. Yeah. So a neurosurgeon from – but you were not educated in the Netherlands. You were – The largest portion of my education was here up until I became an artist. And then I took most of my notes after that through practical mm-hmm. reasons and uh, that meant uh, while I was living in Holland. Right. And I realized I made it sound like I actually believe that you're a neurosurgeon. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you dare cut that. <laughs> I uh, 
can only imagine that going to Holland is probably one of the great places to go study the visual arts because there's so many amazing masters that come from the Netherlands. I, I can only imagine that must be just a great place to go. I'm, you know, it's an ironic thing because I was really trying to eke out my own identity. And I had a lot in those days to do with the punk movement, both here and abroad. And so when I went to the National Gallery in Holland, for example, where all the great masterworks are, I, uh, I would wear my dark sunglasses <laughs> for fear of being overloaded by the, the joy or something. It was really stupid, but I did. But the better part was that for me, I was involved in learning art, again, practically by working with other living artists. And so it was very current and had nothing to do with uh, the art history that everyone knows of Rembrandt and all the others. Is it fair to say that's true, though, of most artists all through history, that they're more influenced by their contemporaries than, or at least since the Renaissance? Well, I, I, I think that, you know, we've gone through different stages and it just depends on what sort of the academic criteria at the time. So in postmodernism, you had to sort of quote somebody. But in terms of um, being influenced, I think that I definitely would say that I have been influenced by Dutch art, both living and dead. So, you know, there I went through a whole period of my production where everything was kind of based on what we in Holland called the style or the neoplasticist, but that would be artists like Mondrian and um, Gerd Rietveld and others. And so I did a lot of work that was a sort of continuation, investigation of, and I picked them because they were very idealistic, and idealism intrigues me. That actually might lead us very nicely to the piece that you want to talk about today, the piece that inspired you. Like, um, is there a continuum between what you were seeing with those Dutch painters and the the inspiration that you think you want to bring to the table today. It's a, yeah. it's a long-winded answer. I hope you don't mind. No, that's fine. I will not interrupt. Okay. Um, <laughs> my life is a series of references that sometimes refer to my own existential existence and that of others. But it's important to understand that when I was a waif of a boy, I at 13 months, contracted polio. And uh, that meant that I was left with an atrophied left leg. And at the time, I didn't know all of this, but here's where it goes. That polio and the way that I was influenced, let's start with one small influence back from when I was like 10. I was the Easter Seal poster child, and or hmm. the tin. And um, I went to the sportsman's dinner, and Jesse Owens sat beside me, the uh, American track and field runner, and he cut up my meat for me because he was sitting to my left. And he was cutting them into rather large pieces that I knew I was going to choke <laughs> on. But I was always Thomas the Tank Engine. You know, I know I can't, I know uh -huh. I can't, I can't. And it, it took me a lot longer to learn that I need to say I can't because I always wanted to please all those people that said, I know I can, I know I can. So against that backdrop, I went to Ottawa. And I got to Ottawa because my 
teacher in grade eight who also had a wrestling team. It was not high school, it was grade school. But he organized a trip for the wrestlers from St. Mary's here in London, but it wasn't a, an art school then, it was just St. Mary's, um, to go to Ottawa and wrestle. So there I was, uh, all ready to go and be a wrestler, which really, really? <laughs> Yeah, really. But I was, again, in that frame of mind that I was the little engine that could. So off we went to Ottawa, and there I was. It must have been about 1968, maybe even a little earlier. And uh, we were at the high school. We did the wrestling stuff, and then we had some spare time, and we went around walking down Spark Street, and at that time, the National Gallery wasn't a separate building. It was housed in what had one time, I think it was a, a Bay or an Eaton's or a Simpson's, but a big department store. And right on, on the, uh, I, don't, what, I don't know what they call it, but where their Cenotaph and, and um, Remembrance Day um, activities are. And so there I stood and we went in and much to my disbelief, I recognized a lot of the buildings and structures in these paintings. How is it possible? Huh. And so the first influence from that was my hometown, my architecture, my surroundings were art at the National Gallery. Hmm. And of course, as I explored further, I realized that I think the show was called The Heart of London, but it was a show by Greg Curnow and a number of other prominent London artists. So the Curnows really spoke to me because they were paintings of Victoria Hospital or just downtown, or but they were places I knew. And suddenly that environment where I lived gained some kind of importance due to the fact, and rather naively, due to the fact that they're in the National Gallery. This must be real art. But the artist who had done the paintings that I was looking at at the time was Greg Curnow, who would play a large part of my life and my development as both a person and an artist. We were friends until his death, sadly. But there I stood, and then I realized that I could be an artist. That wouldn't take effect for a while, but it did. So that's primarily it to begin with. There's so much more. Well, was there a specific one of his paintings that... I forget which one it is. It's the one with the London and the the old hotel that stood where the Canada Trust Towers are now, the London Hotel, I think it was. And it was all like orange, blue, and yellow. And it had devices in it that were electric. So I'm looking up his work. Uh, first of all, I had to get the spelling. So it's a C, uh, probably I should know this guy, but that's how much of a Philistine I am. C-U-R-N-O-E, Greg Curnow. And it's yep. quite distinctive work with uh, very unique colors. Yeah. Yeah, he was, I, I, don't, I don't think it's fair. I mean, I read, I read some of these um, commentaries you didn't. You didn't finish your point, Joe. Um, Joe. No, no, not at all. That's no, that's uh, there, there. Sadly, there was no point. <laughs> so yeah, no, you're you're free to continue. Okay, so he wouldn't like it because he was unique in the sense that he was one of the first artists in this country that was 
nationalist. He was very proud of the fact that he was regional. In his mind, it didn't matter where you were. You didn't have to be in New York or London or Venice or Rome or whatever. All the titles on the cologne bottles or you know, whatever. And he wouldn't have liked to be categorized under the term pop artist because the stigma with pop artists is that it's primarily Americans. And he was vociferous about not being an American, so much so that he never went to the United States. The closest he ever got was standing in the Straits of Juan de Fuca and looking across <laughs> the water at Washington or Oregon. I don't know what state it is, but I think Washington State. And, and I can understand why. I mean, I'm of a different generation. So by the time I went into the art school, the people that were teaching me were Canadians. But when Greg was at the Ontario College of Art and Design, Toronto, a lot of the props were Americans. They were shoveling American art down their throats. Hmm. And Greg did not like that one bit. So he quit and left and came back to London and started making art. So I think his advice to a lot of young artists would be, stop what you're doing and make art. Is it fair to say that he kind of started a movement? I mean... Yeah, he was definitely a regionalist. And I think in terms of art, regionalism is Greg's baby. Mm -hmm. Sadly, I have not been familiar with Greg Cornell, but his work, his art looks uh, fascinating. Can you tell us more about, about his style and his work? Well, I mean, he, he, he loved color. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's uh, understatement. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he used it uh, um, liberally. And he liked colors that popped, meaning, of course, that they were complementary. At times, it might even seem garish, but um, they're beautiful. And they were things, his wife or his life or the view from the back window or, you know, they were intimate things that m most of us can understand because that live here in London, because we share the same. Things are changing, of course, as they always do. But... You know, I did a painting of the Forks of the Thames from the Warncliffe Street Bridge here in London, and it's now in the collection of um, Museum London. But that painting against the current skyline, I wouldn't recognize it. And I'm the painter. Hmm. You know, just things change so fast. Yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little familiar because, of course, I'm from London. So it's yeah. hard not to hear about Greg Curnow at some point when you live in London. Yeah. And I was very lucky in the sense that... Uh, where I worked for a while, there was one of his bicycles hanging on the wall. It was a huge painting, and uh, I got to look at it every day. So I, I'm seeing, I'm seeing paintings of, I'm seeing self-portraits. I'm seeing paintings of uh, multiple paintings of bicycles, lakes with uh, sailboats, people with uh, unusual hats or helmets. <laughs> and he did, he did installation type stuff too, right? Yeah. Right? So like, yeah, he did. He was a great artist. I, I have no problem saying that. I really admire him a lot. So is he? You you call him a regional painter? Re is, yes. Is he? How how widely known is he? How widely known well, should he be? I don't think that any Canadian artist or anyone in Canada that studied art doesn't know who he is. Okay. I mean, many exhibitions at the National Gallery. I mean, that's where I saw him, and that would have been sixty. I can't remember, 68, let's say. I was just a wee boy. 
I mean, after that, there are so many books and so many major exhibitions from the Art Gallery of Ontario, everywhere. You showed abroad as well, but because of that regionalism, it, it sometimes limited him because he didn't want to show in America. Hmm. He was scornful towards Americans, to be honest. I mean, I lived in the U.S. for a while and worked in New York, and so it wasn't obviously my cup of tea because I look at the art, but some people may say that I'm naive. But nonetheless, he's internationally known artist here in Canada and known around the world because of his connections to the period of the 60s. I was going to ask a question about that, that sort of London idea or the regionalism idea and the idea of Canada. I was having a conversation with a friend the other day and and uh, we were talking about the first Trudeau, Trudeau the Elder, uh, and his multicultural policies. And uh, we, were, we were sort of both kind of thinking, yeah, I think really in some ways Canada kind of begins then in the 60s when that starts happening and people like Greg Curnow are saying, no, we're different. We're not the same as Americans yeah. or the British. Cause I would imagine that in some fields it was English people who were the instructors, not Americans, depending on the yeah. field. Yeah. I wonder if that's, if there's any truth to that idea that, that our conception of Canada really kind of does begin back then. Let me describe a map of North America <laughs> that Greg drew. It's a beautiful poster. He has Canada, Baffin Island, all of it at the top, and then he has Mexico bordering Canada, and there is no USA in the map. He just erased it as though it never existed. And I mean, I wish I had that in my collection. Not, Don't get me wrong, I don't have like this big collection that I need pieces for, but I wish I had yeah. one, because <laughs> I think there are I mean, like I said, you know, I've shown in New York and worked in New York for years. It's not, I'm not anti-American per se. I mean, I, I'm anti-asshole no matter where they are. It doesn't matter here, there, or anywhere. I, I'm going to jump in there if I can. So uh, imagine you're an American listening to this podcast, mm -hmm. if you've made it this far. What, what is an American to think of that? Like, how would you not be offended by that? Well, Yeah. He didn't give a shit. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he, he, um, let me put it to you this way. I can't remember. We did a show at the Embassy Cultural House here in London, and Greg put a piece in. And there was an American. We were doing a series, and there was an American artist. And he, at the opening, I remember he was talking, and then he saw the Greg text thing. It was Greg did a lot of works that were texts. And very colorful and beautiful. But the guy said, well, has this guy never seen Jenny Holster, who, who is an American artist who uses text? But the truth of the matter that Greg was in Baghdad before she was in her dad's bag. I mean, it's like hmm. he had been doing that type of text work for years. And so I think that's the point that Greg, I think, felt the strongest about. Americans think they are the center of the universe when they're clearly not. So... You know, how they feel about that, I mean, hubris is a, a, a nasty thing. So I wouldn't encourage them to get too hubris about it. It's just him. I don't, and I know many Canadians who don't share the same opinion, but I yeah. honor him. Yeah, I don't, I don't share his opinion either, to be honest. Though I do like the idea of celebrating your own 
Yeah. Which is, I think, the positive aspect of, of what he was about, which is just because it's from London, Ontario, doesn't mean it's not really good. Which oh, sure. I, I think I think as Canadians we're guilty of this problem of of like in, in Canada, you know, to be seen as successful sometimes you have to go down to the United States and make it there before people here will sometimes accept your success. And I know that that is uh, true for lots of the arts here in Canada. It's less true than it used to be, though. So I think yeah. maybe one of the legacies of, a, of the Greg Curnows of, of the, the, that time period is that it started us on this journey of being able to accept our own excellence outside of other places, other countries. Because I would say, I would argue that probably at a certain point in our history, it was all about what the UK said or people yes. in England said rather than what people in yep. America said. Definitely. So where, where would you... Um situate Greg's art in, in the scheme of art, like uh, in terms of uh, importance or significance? Well, I mean, he comes into recognition in, in the 60s. You know, I think he was still going pretty strong up until his death in the 90s. There's another part, though, that I haven't started on about Greg, and that was that Greg, for all the success he had, he was not afraid to share it. So he would, mm -hmm. Pierre Tiberge would come to him and say, I'd like to do a show with your work. And he said, well, you should look at these three other artists' work. And then suddenly it's those four artists. Mm. It's exhibition. That's the kind of guy he was. He was a, a very decent man. I, I know that some people didn't like him because they perceived him as arrogant. And he had a certain amount of arrogance to him, but I always thought it was charming. The other thing that that cultivated was that he then looked at the situation in Canada and made a radical change that has affected everyone in the visual arts in Canada, whether they know it or not. And that was, he started an organization with other prominent Londoner, um, Jack Chambers, who was also a painter, and they started Canadian Artist Representation. And Canadian Artist Representation became an organization that made sure that artists were paid. You know, you go down to the States, oh, you're lucky to have a show, and all the money's coming out of your pocket. In Canada, you can get a grant. That's largely because of the hard work of people like Greg and Jack and, and many others. So we have a sort of professional recognition. What a concept, you know, eh? Yeah, hey? Yeah, I know. pay your artists. Pay your artists. <laughs> yeah. And he, and they do. And, and so if you have a one-person show in Canada, you might get a thousand bucks to do the show. Now, that's not, you know, going to fill your bank account up so that your eyes tilt like a pinball machine. But the reality is you are given something for your hard work. And then you can ask for a grant. And Greg was him and several other prominent artists like John Boyle and were influential in starting all of that. I'd like to stop down in that idea for a second and just talk about that. Because there is this um, this perception that artists will just give you their work for free and that you can consume it and you don't have to give them anything. Pay for your art, people. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that was the one thing I, uh, for me as a young man. I looked at Greg, who was my hero, became my friend, but during that hero stage, I saw an artist who was able to provide for his family. He had a wife, three kids. His wife didn't work. 
and they lived off the fruits of his art making, which included grants and sales. And that, to me, when I was, you know, in grade 12, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to try to make a go of this. We'd use him as the model and go, well, if he can do it, then so can I. Yeah, that's and really I, inspiring. I mean, it yeah, is, as, a, as a young person to see somebody in the arts and actually making a living at it, that's a doorway to doing that, becoming that. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, I really admired him for that. Now, can you speak to how else his work influenced your own work? Well, <laughs> he was, uh, he liked to be a little um, troublemaker. So we like troublemakers in this podcast. Which I think yeah. qualify. I think that's an apt description of you as well, Gerard, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, I want to hear more about that later. Mark <laughs> that thought. But he liked to turn the knob up a little higher on occasion. Or He belonged to a, a group, the Nihilus Spasm Band. Okay. You know, on the instruments are kazoos. And one of my favorite artists in, in life is in that group. It's an artist sculptor named Murray Favreau and yeah so things like that I mean I you know I took it upon myself I, I sort of left the genre of just painting out for a number of years and I did performance art and so forth but I always did things that would stir the pot and he liked artists that stirred the pot so he was for me as a young artist after first becoming my hero and then after learning him as a person and becoming his friend, he was very supportive. And, you know, he would hear about some of the stuff that I was doing and it would just bring a grin to his face. You know, was, <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, what, uh, tell us now. What, how are you stirring the pot? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know what your audience is. I already was worried about me used, dropping the F-bomb and stuff. But I did a show in London, my, one of my very first shows, I didn't know what I was going to make, but I went to an abattoir. In the abattoir, I I watched the whole process from start to finish. And then I harvested organs from cattle. You know, primary things like the brain and the lungs. and And then I encased those all in a clear plexiglass boxes that were sealed from the outside. And then they were put on the floor of the gallery. And I went to the opening and it was really well attended and I looked at these sculptures which were sort of meant to say you call this art hmm. and uh, people were showing like you know my friends particularly were picking them up and looking at them and going cool <laughs> and that was not what I wanted to hear so I was aghast and I started kicking these things at the opening and of course you can imagine what a piece of fetid flesh that had been sealed inside a plexiglass box smelled like and there was a stampede <laughs> to get it out because <laughs> there there wouldn't have been room at the toilet it was so bad <laughs> stench and, uh, this art stinks <laughs> literally yeah. yeah yeah well that's what the, we used to have a magazine at that time called satellite they wrote, the review of my work was, you call that art, which just tickled my fancy. And I would do things like that. And Greg loved that. Greg loved the fact that I could piss people off. Huh. Okay, so that's how you would stir the pot. How would he stir the pot? That's a good question. I 
I think I'm not absolutely certain to answer that question with any authority, but you know, the idea of artist union, the idea of his work with regards to, you know, the nude, he was just brilliant. And, um, but definitely, you know, an artist union and, and telling gallerists and so forth. I mean, you know, back in the day, like Greg, would have to do things that had large impact. He sold a lot of art, and so and he had a dealer. And in Canada, we have an agency called the Art Bank, and the Art Bank buys art from artists for the collection of the Canadian people. And he would always be visited because of his notoriety. He got to the point where he would make a contract with that dealer um, saying, look, you can have your percentage, whatever that was, but not on these sales. And that would be the art bank, for example, because mm. in his opinion, he cultivated that sale. He did all the legwork. He, you know, over a period of 20 years, why should this gallerist suddenly get a honking 40 or 50% of the deal when they never did anything? So that would piss people off. Man, I, I wish he was around to talk to Jeff Bezos. <laughs> yeah, hey. <laughs> Yeah, I know. In America, like that's the thing. You know, I've lived in the American equation where the saying is, you know, oh, you're lucky to have a show. Well, no, I'm not lucky to have a show. You know, this is what I do. And you're lucky to have something to look at. Mm. Now, pay <laughs> up, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So Big importance. So I have I have a question then, because I, I mean, I, I don't want to leave this conversation with at least talking a little bit about New York and your 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 access to the punk movement and your part in that. So what did? But I could. There's a segue to it, which is what did Greg think about that? I, I organized the first. Uh, you being a Londoner, Mark, I organized the first sort of punky concert in London, and I got a group of women, none of like classic punk, none of whom really actually knew how to play their instrument very hmm. well yet. And, it's a prerequisite, um, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, uh, they were called The Curse, and uh, we did a concert at uh, the gallery, the Four City Gallery, which at that time was located on Richmond Street, um, down at the end of Carling, but has since moved many, many times, but it's still in existence. But he loved that. He He loved the fact that that activity and the energy and the and don't forget, he was a member of the Spasm Band, so his prerequisite to music was noise. Right. In fact, you know, when you think of uh, people in, in noise music, like the, the artists in Sonic Youth, Thurston Moore, and people like that, I mean, they come to Canada to listen to this stuff. Uh, and they would come to London. So it meant a lot. It meant a lot. It meant a lot to me. And I'm sure many, many others. So, yeah, that's how. Many different ways, but he was always, um, he was a very thoughtful guy, too, you know. If he was going to, if he was going to roast you in the media, he'd let you know beforehand. Oh, how oh that's, that's good. That's, well, that's nice. That's not a good PR move because it gives us too much time to prepare. But so, yeah, so that, well, so he was okay with you going to New York. No, I don't know about that. Oh, I was going to say, that, that I, surprises I, uh, me. He was okay with that. Cause, yeah, no, 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 no. I don't think so. And I, I mean, a lot of the people who he strongly influenced, and I'm not going to name names here because I don't need that kind of no. energy. <laughs> but uh, they um, hold the same opinion. 
And um, I know when I went to New York, I got dissed, not by everybody, but by people who meant a lot to me at the time and still do to some degree. But the idea of going to America is kind of like a, a bit of a traitor, treasonous uh, to the idea of regionalism. Now, not all regionalists are so dogmatic, but it's still a part of reality. Hmm. I guess I'm a terrible trader then. I sell way more books in the United States than I do in Canada. <laughs> well, you know, that's that's the point. People are contacting me and saying, would you like to do a show in New York? Well, yeah, because I can't get some Ontario or Canadian gallery to give me a show. Why wouldn't I want a show in New York? I've got to try to make a living. Okay, so tell us tell us about your adventures in New York. Well, I've, I've been going there since I was a boy in short pants. That meant like 1965, I went to the World's Fair. So I was already pretty comfortable with New York, or at least seeing New York from the backseat of my parents' car. But um, then in the mid-70s, I started going on my own. I had an aunt that lived in midtown Manhattan, and she let me use her apartment. And from there, I went you know, and searched for all these places that were important to punks, for example, CBGBs. I went to CBGBs. When you walked in, you, you feared for your life because <laughs> it, was, it was bikers, Hell's Angels, and, and pretty rough-looking disguises. You know, maybe inside they were sweethearts. But hmm. that movement escalated or moved forward so quickly that – when I was going there and it was CBGB Zumpog and there was a, everybody was punk or biker and a lot of them were, were already or soon to be stars, Deborah Harry and, and various others. Within a year and a half, it was filled with people, the bridge and tunnel crowd, they call them, but uh, people that come to Manhattan via a bridge or a tunnel and are from either, you know, upstate or New Jersey. And there was no more room for bikers. They stopped coming. And it was the begin. Like, there, it wasn't the beginning of the end because I don't think it ended. But if you were to talk to an artist like Chaz Vincent, he might uh, say, yeah, it didn't end because, you know, he's got a legacy of his own um, in terms of punk in London. Anyway, so then I, I started getting involved and I started meeting people. So, for example, I'm still friends. My oldest friend from New York. We're both about the same age, and I'm 67. He would become my friend. He would come to my home in Amsterdam. He then, at that time, played as the drummer for Lydia Lunch, Teenage Jesus, and the Jerks. And he was one of the Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. And they were a pretty uh, robust uh, band. What was his name? James Scalbunos. You might know his name because he's the drummer for Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Oh. Um, you know, so we hung around and he'd come to my house and see the difference. Because in my opinion, at that time, if you were a punk and you, you know, you had to be estranged or alienated or whatever. But I realized quickly that sometimes that alienation in New York was, oh, shit, I've dropped my father's credit card somewhere. What am I going to do now? Hmm. Well, so... <laughs> James came to uh, visit me and my good friend, Babeth Mondini, who teaches film at the Dutch Film School. But she's the head of the Buddhist um, Broadcasting Network. 
anyway, he came and visited us there. And I said, well, now I'm going to show you the difference between Dutch punk and New York punk. So we went to a party in a house. And, you know, Dutch staircases, if you've ever been there, they're rather narrow and rather steep mm-hmm. quickly. So we were partying on, suddenly up the stairs pops the head of some helmeted policeman, and he proceeded to grab everyone that he could and push us, quicken our descent down the stairs. And he... Like this on every floor. They were just rounding us all up and kicking us in the ass to get out of there. And when we got to the bottom floor, we ran a gauntlet of cops that were, you know, had the opportunity to get their um, batons and give us a good whack just for measure. <laughs> so Just, just the, in case you um, hadn't got the message yet. <laughs> yeah, just in case, right? And that was the end of it. You know, there wasn't a truck there arresting people and throwing us in. They just... They stopped the party and everyone had to go somewhere else. You know, that idea of estrangement and alienation in England or in Holland was, you know, it wasn't like America. But because if you were singing about employment, your grandfather was out of a job, your dad was out of a job, you're out of a job, you know, and it's not just the loss of a credit card. It wasn't so much a style. In other words, it was a way of life in many ways. Mm. So that was a difference that I felt strongly about New York and Europe in the punk scene at the time. Are you still a punk? Yes, I think so. I um, I mean, I've changed a lot. Um, I, but I, in my heart, I, I don't mind uh, screaming that there are issues. You know, whether, I mean, social content in punk is, I think, you know, God Save the Queen, a fascist regime. <laughs> you know, they made, that was, you know, the lines from a Sex Pistols song. And, or the Clash, London's Calling, or whatever. It's it's all in there, and, and, and it does have social impact. And so, yes, I, I'm still a punk. I, I do not wear leather pants. I do not have... Uh, <laughs> And safety pin through my nose and upper lip, but there was a time I did. I just don't know. Yeah, there's there's an ethos to punk that's it's it's very it's not totally dissimilar to indie the indie ethos in the sense that it's there's a DIY component to it. Like you're not part of the regular machine, so you have to find your own way of doing things, which doesn't really have anything to to do with the aesthetic of punk. No. Okay, so you're a punk. Was Greg Curnow a punk? Yeah. I think he was. I mean, I, his sons were, both of them, heavily. Owen had, you know, one of those mohawks, and they did, they had a band, and it was very punk noise. And Greg was really encouraging and supported that. So, and some of the things that Greg would be or stand behind were, in many ways, um, punk. So, yes, he was a punk. I don't know that punk is a dogma, so that I would have to meet a series of mm-hmm. criteria mm-hmm. in order to call myself one. I think in terms of the music, sometimes it's overlooked, and and some bands get thrown in as punk when they're clearly not. But the reason I said, yes, he was a punk, is because I think that 
understanding the milieu at the time and him, I would think he would define himself as a punk if you were to ask him. That's cool. Hmm. Yeah, his aesthetic, though, is not, I would say. No. I mean, the bright colors especially are not super punky from what I remember of that. Well, that's, then again, you know, the hair, the hair could be brightly. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's yeah. true. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, and the, the way the colors are and it's uh, it's pretty magnificent work. Oh yeah. His work is great. And so is yours. So we're going to have to put up some links to your work as well as some links to Greg's because I, the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast is this because I'm a great admirer of your work and you are a painter as well as a visual artist, because some of your paintings are magnificent. Thank you. I've always defined myself in my mind. So when you asked me earlier, as a painter, and the work that comes out of that, whether I do it with a camera or otherwise, comes out of my painter sensibility. So when I look through a viewfinder in my camera, I'm composing like an artist, and then I'm looking at colors and so forth like a painter. I'm not just a document. No, this this is one of those podcasts where we could talk forever, and I'd love to keep it forever. But uh, <laughs> but I I always look ahead to the editing, and I'm like, oh dear, we better <laughs> we better uh, wrap it up. But uh, any final thoughts then on uh, on Greg Cronow, punk, and and your work? Well, two things I want to say. Never let anyone steal your joy as an artist. They're out there, and they would suck it out of you, and you'd have nothing left. And so you really have to be protective. And then to do that, I would say my second point, to thine own self be true. And that's the way I kind of see it. Those are great pieces of advice. I like that. Thank you, Gerard Pa, for being on our podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm, yeah, I enjoyed it. It's fun to rethink things and work out why we did what we did, right? <laughs> yeah, because because hindsight is twenty twenty. It's nice to be able to look back and yeah, life doesn't make sense while it's happening, but when you look no. back, you can sort of see some themes and yeah, it makes a bit more sense. Exactly. I know I made a lot of mistakes as a punk, you know, but I I I don't really want to spend a lot of time talking about that. <laughs> well, that's too bad because now I want to go for another five minutes hearing about the mistakes. <laughs> that could be well, uh, you know, episode two. Okay, Trey. all right, yeah. that'll yeah, be the okay. yeah the next. Uh, yeah, let's do. We that. can ask about Willie S. Burroughs then too. Yeah, don't. we haven't really touched. I know, of course not. Any of that, <laughs> you know, my relationships to him and a lot of other fam- very famous artists in the. All right, buckle up. We're going another another twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, uh, you know, my work with Chuck Close. Um, yeah, I was going to mention him too. Yeah, and lots of others, um, and you know, over the years. But yeah, let's save that for another. Uh, All right. Yeah. Okay. Now I got to bring you back, so we'll do that. <laughs> That's right. There's All the right. sequel. Yeah. Job security. You know, my dad was a gardener, and he always talked about fertilizers. Job security. <laughs> <laughs> Spread, it, spread out the fertilizer because it's going to grow like Ellen. We're going to have to cut it. And when it starts not growing so well, we put more fertilizer on it. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Jared.
So Mark, you and I have discussed how people can support this podcast. And uh, one of the ways I would like to get them to support us is by, and I think you're going to like this, by uh, purchasing one of your books. Ooh, I like that. How about your books? We're going to start with your books. We'll start with my books? Okay. And today I would like to point people in particular to Alpha Max, which is a novel about the metaverse, which is kind of in vogue these days. Yeah, and it's it doesn't take a lot of the standard approaches that the metaverse stories do. I think it's a bit more grounded. It's funny, and it's uh, and it's witty, and it's smart, and it's entertaining. Go to recreative.ca slash support, and you can find our books there. Alpha Max by Mark A. Rayner.